0: okay I think we we might get started. Um thanks very much for for coming along this evening. This is week six of the Oxford Transitional Justice Research Seminar Series. Um, It's a real privilege for us to have one of our own uh, people speaking this week. Um, Chris, I'm fairly sure, doesn't need much of an introduction as he's already very well known to all of you. Um, But nonetheless, I will give Chris an introduction. Um, Chris, of course, is a a DPhil candidate in politics uh, here in Oxford. Uh, He also happens to be our OTJR treasurer, so the man who actually has to look after a very small amount of money. Um, <laughs> we, we long for the day when Chris is much busier than, than he is at the moment. Um, but, but Chris not only is a DPhil student here but he's also got very extensive uh, experience as a practitioner working on a range of transitional justice and legal issues. Chris wrote a, a very well-received um, book for the Institute for Security Studies this year called uh, the Justice Sector Afterthought, which looked at issues of witness protection, particularly in the ad hoc and international tribunals dealing with, with mass crimes. Chris is a qualified uh, lawyer from New Zealand. Um, of course, he has a great prowess on the rugby field, uh, having played Super 14 rugby back in New Zealand. So as you get a sense, Chris has many strings to his bow. Um, this evening, he's going to speak to us on the topic that is uh, is up here, looking at one of his uh, areas of special Specialty, which is the Special Court for Sierra Leone. Chris, it's uh, a real honour for us to have you. Thanks, mate. Thanks.
1: thanks, Phil. Um, and thanks, everyone, for uh, making the effort to, um, to come along on a very uh, miserable and cold day. Um, what I'm seeking to focus on is uh, in, in this paper today um, is the extent to which impartial case selection by the prosecution at the Special Court uh, has been compromised by the actors who designed it. Um, this paper seeks to examine special court case selection and the nature of investigative practices within the context of the politics of the conflict's conclusion. Um, I argue that the court's creation was driven as much by internal US politics and a British-constructed narrative as it was by intentions to address impunity. I also argue that advocacy groups, which often hailed hailed judgments and indictments as signs of international intent to address impunity, played into the hands of actors who manipulated this discourse to undermine that goal for their own interests. Um, I'll start off by providing a brief summary of the conflict before examining the conflict's conclusion. The design of the court, the nature of past selection, and then briefly some concluding thoughts on the effect that the courts had on Sierra Leone's transitional justice experience. So Sierra Leone, as I'm sure you're all aware, is a small West African nation bordered by Guinea to the North, and East and Liberia to the south. Um, now, the causes and motivations behind the conflict are a point of scholarly contention, which I'm not going to address here. Similarly, I won't provide. I'll provide a very superficial analysis of the conflict. Um, I'll just try to give a couple of snippets as uh, as to some of the um, perceived intentions behind, uh, um, well, embodied in some of the key uh, uh, actors. Um, Now Sierra Leone is a former British colony which achieved independence in 1961. After an economic boom during the 1970s, Sierra Leone's dependence on commodity exports was exposed as commodity prices fell, the state failed to capture increasingly black market diamond revenues and economic liberalisation along with devaluations and then flotation of the Leone uh, were imposed uh, by donors. These economic conditions caused hyperinflation, capital flight, and a decimated middle class as salaries plummeted. The economic deterioration was exacerbated by demographic pressures and a corrupt uh, um, and a corrupt state unable to capture revenue from a, fri- a shrinking formal economy. Um, now, in West Africa, um, American, British, and French interests have commonly been aligned in attempting to solicit external commercial penetration but competed for the fruits penetration war. And this competition has been pursued through the development of regional clients, such as Libya for the French and Nigeria for the British and Americans. The two regional competitors have often supported friendly parties and conflicts in the region and uh, my analysis is that that the Sierra Leone civil conflict reinforces this uh, theory um, of external leveraging of regional power politics. And by the start of, this, of Sierra Leone's conflict in 1991, social spending was just 15% of what it had been a decade earlier. Inflation had reached three digits, a typical mo- monthly salary was commensurate to the value of a bag of rice, um, and life expectancy was less than 40 years. The marginalised and idle youth demographic in particular represented uh, <coughs> the most inevitable source of instability for the Sierra Leone state. In March 1991, an armed insurgency called the Revolutionary United Front, led by photo and backed by Charles Taylor's Liberian National Patriotic Front, entered eastern Sierra Leone from Liberia in an attempt to try to conduct a revolution and overthrow the government of Joseph moment. Both the AUF and the MPFL leadership had received training in Libya, and according to Western intelligence, held French third-party tacit support by the Ivory Coast from where Taylor launched his Liberian rebellion. The war caused uh, tens of thousands of deaths, over a million displacements, and upwards of 400,000 amputations of one or more limbs, amongst other crimes. In 1992, a, uh, a group of Sierra Leonean uh, army soldiers, venting discontent of poor treatment by the government, conducted a coup, establishing a national Provin- provisional ruling council. The army in power were not effective in countering the AUF, and often committed abuses themselves. Dissatisfaction and distrust of the, of the Sierra Leone armed forces caused many rural, rural communities to form local civil defence forces to defend themselves from both the AUF and, and ill-disciplined um, army combatants. In 1995, the NPRC's then greatest source of reference revenue, uh, the CNCO and Sierra Routile mines, were captured. With British and commercial interests threatened, the British government helped secure a deal which provided... Uh, a British firm, Diamond Mining Concessions, uh, and interests in Sierra in exchange for deployment of a mercenary force to help reinforce the government. In 96, dubious elections were held, bringing MPRC advisor Ahmed Tijan Kabar uh, to the presidency. A failed attempt to, uh, at peace led Kabar to depend more heavily on the CDF for support as the SLA, as the um, Sierra Leonean um, forces were more commonly viewed as corrupt. Co- cooperating with the rebels. Um, Kabar's perceived hostility towards the army prompted it to conduct a coup in May 1997. At the army's request, AUF leader Foda Sanko, then in detention in Nigeria, ordered the AUF to join the, the armed forces and government. Kabar fled to Guinea where he established a government in exile, in close council with Britain, who pressured Nigeria to send eco troops to assist CDF efforts to force (coughs) Dubai's return. The Sierra Leone Army marginalised the RUF from peace talks, fomenting distrust between uh, between the SLA and the RUF. Next door in Liberia, uh, and also in 1997, Charles Taylor comprehensively won the Liberian presidency. The US, having previously viewed, viewed Taylor as an agent of Francophone encroachment, into the historically US sphere of influence, actively engaged the AUS Liberian supporter of diplomacy. Taylor's most solid bond was developed with the US was then with then US Special Envoy for Human Rights and Democracy in Africa, uh, Jesse Jackson. And also black congressional caucus leader Donald Trump. Despite reproachment with the US, Taylor visited Paris in nineteen ninety eight, declaring Liberian plans for privatization for French business to spearhead this process. The Khabar government was returned to power by an an Ecomog and CDF attack, planned and coordinated uh, by a British uh, mercenary group called Sandline in 1998. Um, Then in March 1999, with Nigeria seeking to draw down its Ecomog support and continued US and French diplomatic support for Charles Taylor and the RUF, British Foreign Minister Robin Cook met with his French counterpart in Abuja from where he instructed a reluctant Tijan Kabar to pursue dialogue with the AUF. US Special Envoy Jesse Jackson confronted Kabat at a May 1999 conference in Ghana and brought him to LOMO to begin negotiation to, to begin ne- to negotiate the Lomé Peace Accord. Kabat and the AU's photo, Sanko eventually agreed a power sharing peace deal, amnesty for crimes committed. And the replacement of ECOMOC by United Nations Force. in the Loma negotiations, Sankov marginalised the Sierra Leone Armed Forces, further entrenching the rift between the uh, between the two groups stemming from the SLA-led peace negotiations, uh, peace negotiations where they uh, w- with the Kabar government where they had marginalised the AUF when before they had been removed from government. The leader of the coup, Johnny Paul Koroma, had also been taken captive briefly by IUF Field Commander uh, Sam Balkari. President Kabar exploited the rift between the two, gaining the allegiance of Koroma and the great majority of the Sierra Leone armed forces. This changed the security dynamic dramatically in his favour. Kabar now had the Sierra Leone armed forces largely on the side, a large economic force and of course the camera at his disposal. Perhaps the most important swing of support came from the Republican-controlled US Senate, seeking to change Clinton administration policy in the region against Charles Taylor and the RUF. The Republican Appropriations Committee, led by Senator Judd Gregg, blocked funding for education and vocational programs associated with disarmament of the rebels. These programs presented the only real incentive for RUF combatant disarmament. Kabar refused to grant many allocated RUF positions in government and along with the British government, continued to cite RUF reluctance to disarm as intents to derail the LOMO peace accord. This narrative was adopted by the mass media, and little attention was drawn to the non-disarmament of the CDF. Pressure on combatants to disarm without any incentive to do so culminated in the May 2000 seizure of over 550 UNAMSAL peacekeepers by by RUF combatants, with four peacekeepers killed and three injured. Khabar deployed the SLA... Alongside the CDF in Freetown to arrest senior AUF figures and announced Sanko's house arrest. On the 8th of May 2000, under Kabar's instruction, the CDF and SLA attacked Sanko's residents under cover of civilian protest. The press adopted the Kabar narrative of RUF attacks for unarmed civilian protesters. In response, the AUF marched on Freetown but were met and repelled by a coalition of, C- of the Syrian Unarmed Forces, the CDF, ECOMOG and British troops coordinated armed and trained by the British. U.S. Senator Gregg continued to block U.S. funds for Sierra Leone until Loma was abandoned. And any peacekeeping mission was used to undermine Charles Taylor's influence in Sierra Leone. Now he also called for an international war crimes tribunal to investigate and punish atrocities committed by the AUF to be set up. This is the first time such a tribunal had been publicly proposed. and then on June, on June 2nd, 2000, Kofi and Manon and 15 Security Council members headed on a two-day r- retreat at which the Sierra Leonean situation was discussed. And this was the first time that indications of an Anglo-American compromise on their policy towards Liberia and Sierra Leone could be seen in a statement from Cabar's government that private security firms from either the United States or Britain would be contracted to provide security in their diamond mining areas. Charles Taylor's pledge of 3,000 troops to an ECOWAS peacekeeping contingent in Sierra Leone and his call for Sanko to be moved to a, third, to a third country also indicated that he was resigned to an RUF military defeat. On the 5th of June, the US State Department stated it was in consultation with the UN and the UK to bring perpetrators of crimes in Sierra Leone to justice, indicating that crimes committed since the Lomé amnesty were not covered by This, of course, implied the U.S. considered at that time the crimes committed prior to Lomao were. Jesse Jackson was fired as Special Envoy for for the promotion of democracy and human rights in Africa. And the next day, U.S. Senator Jack Gregg released $50 million million he had been blocking. Gregg demanded accountability while stating he had received an assurance that Santo would play no further role in Sierra Leone's future, that the Lomao Court was hopefully dead, and that the AUF control over over diamonds will be broken. Until this time, the Clinton administration had turned Senator Gregg's blockage of the funds a great mistake. With the continued absence of funding for disarmament, the Clinton administration officially indicated its shift in policy in a letter to Senator Gregg from U.S. Ambassador to the UN, Richard Holbrook. The letter, the contents of which the two had negotiated, stated that that Mr. Sanko should have no political future, that the U.N. should try to disrupt the RUF's hold on diamonds, and that the U.S. should come up with a strategy to deal with Liberian President Charles Taylor. On June 6th, Senator Gregg made the following statement. The United States will not turn a blind eye to the rape of the people of the land of Sierra Leone. We will demand that brutal folks are held accountable for their atrocities, and regional troub- troublemakers must look with fear to their own future. The U.S. and Britain began to negotiate the possibility of a tribunal. But France, Russia and China viewed this move as an attempt to deal with Liberia through the back door. They concluded that such a tribunal should be funded by the U.S. and Britain themselves. The U.S. and Britain also favoured a hybrid model funded by voluntary donations as it would be less costly than its predecessors and granted greater fiscal control over the selection and behaviour of key personnel. Oh, sorry, I should say it also granted uh, greater control over the selection and behaviour of key personnel. On 8 June, British UN Representative Jeremy Greenstock stated a comprehensive resolution was being proposed to expand the UNAMSAL force to bring to justice those that had attacked peacekeepers and committed violations of international law and to address the illegal AUF trade of diamonds for arms. The British government then asked Kabar the to write a letter to the Security Council, requesting it to, to establish an international criminal tribunal. After a closed session on 21 June, the Security, the Security Council found that the RUF had violated the Lomé agreement and that those responsible for taking UN peacekeepers hostage should be brought to justice. In July, the LERB, who were in contact with military officers from both the US and Britain, attacked northwestern Liberia from Guinea. Guinean leader Lansana Conte had been a strong U.S. ally in the region. Guinean forces were provided with increased U.S. military training and ammunition. The Liberian government appealed to the Security Council with support from ECOWAS, France, Russia and China to lift the sanctions, but the U.K. and U.S. remained steadfastly opposed. Charles Taylor desperately attempts to appease the U.S. with conciliatory actions, attempts to utilise diplomatic patrons, and both the Democratic and Republican parties appeared impotent. After meeting with George Bush on Taylor's behalf, prominent Republican evangelist Pat Robertson told Taylor, the only thing I can advise you to do, Mr. President, is appeal to God, because what I'm hearing from George Bush, there's nothing you can do about what America intends to do. On 14 August 2000, the United Nations Security Council requested the UN Secretary, Secretary General to create a special court for Sierra Leone by negotiating agreement with the government. The special court was part of a multi pronged US strategy to pressure Charles Taylor from power. The strategy included support for the LERD insurgency and May 2001 sanctions diminishing Taylor's capacity to repel the Leard advance. Taylor hoped France would be able to push through similar sanctions on Guinea for its support of the Leard. However, he had overestimated French clout for the Security Council. The initial leanings of the Special Court were inherent in the empowering resolution which commended the efforts of the government of Sierra Leone and Nico WAS for bringing lasting peace to Sierra Leone. August 2001 saw both the Security Council resolution to create the Special Court passed and the White House asked Department of Defense lawyer David Crane to help set up an experiment in West Africa. In September 2001, Crane would begin utilising Department of Defence intelligence information to formulate who he believed was most responsible for crimes committed during the conflict. The Security Council made, ambitions, made ambitious claims as to the effect a special court would have for Sierra Leone. It states that in, particular circumstances of, in the particular circumstances of Sierra Leone, a credible system of justice and accountability for the very serious crimes committed there would end impunity and will contribute to the process of national reconciliation and to the restoration and maintenance of peace. Once Security Council consensus had been reached on the Court's creation and financial independence from UN coffers, Britain and the United States largely controlled the Security Council position. Resolution 1314 proposed a tribunal which had, had, based upon conclusions it had already made, assumed non-culpability for crimes, committed by the leadership of one party to the conflict. Further, in drafting and negotiating the resolution, Permanent Security Council members either assumed non-culpability for their own financial, political or military role, or sought to impede investigation of that role. Resolution 1314 was widely lauded by rights groups as evidence of the international community's intent to address impunity no matter what office individuals hold. The special court statute provides ad-hoc amnesty to peacekeepers and government-aligned military contractors. The statute places those persons within primary jurisdiction of their sending state and requires Security Council approval for their investigation by the court. This puts actors such as Ecomog uh, Colonel Maxwell Kobe or British military officers who often directed the CDF beyond the reach of the court, it may also have excluded from prosecution British diplomats and servicemen coordinating the military support of the CDF. British support for the CDF, despite sanctions, was documented by the League Commission of Inquiry, which found that the that the Foreign and Commonwealth Office had been informed uh, and was aware of uh, armaments and other and other forms of support provided to the civil defence forces and violations of. Of uh, um, armed sanctions imposed on Sierra Leone at the time. Whether or not the article provides immunity to the CDF is an argument, is an argument never raised by, CDF defense, uh, by the CDF defence. It appears counsel presume it did not. Now, this left the Kabar government open to indictment. The Kabar government had made clear to the, to the Secretary General's office its reluctance to, uh, to agree to cooperate with the special court until the court was established and the prosecutor had been appointed. Article 2 of the agreement between the UN and the Sierra Leone government stipulates that the Secretary General and the President of Sierra Leone will appoint key court personnel. In the years within the jurisdiction of the court, the 30th of November in 1996 until its conclusion, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission found, 50% of, found that 50% of, 57% of abuses uh, were committed by the RUF, 30% by the Sierra Leone Armed Forces, and 12% by the Civil Defence Force. With a negligible percentage committed by ECOMOG forces, this meant that the prosecution of ECOMOG personnel would have been unlikely. Abuses were brought to the attention of personnel in the prosecution. Uh, Sorry, ECOMOG abuses were brought to the attention of uh, personnel within the prosecution, but were not pursued because of this clause. More importantly, the clause protects any personnel in a peacekeeping role in an agreement with the government from prosecution. This meant that British or British procured advisers coordinating pro-Kabar forces against the AUF could not be held accountable. Because they were empowered to fund the court, the British and the United United States government were also empowered to recommend critical court appointments to the Secretary-General and to withhold funding as and when court functions occurred or threatened to occur outside expectation. The United States recommended a lawyer from the Department of Defence named David Crane to, the, to be the court's first chief prosecutor. The government of Sierra Leone appointed deputy prosecutor Desmond De Silva, President Kabar's uh, former colleague uh, in Chambers in London. Prosecutorial policy and power to target those who bear the greatest responsibility or the hallmarks of British and U.S. interests. The original prosecutor, David Crane, admits available intelligence at the Department of Defence was critically instructed in formulating who to target. Since being informed, he was likely to be appointed as prosecutor in September 2001. He had had almost a year to examine Department of Defence information. He also stated that after seeking NGO corroboration of, uh, of the DOD files, a four-corners idea as to who bore the greatest responsibility... Uh, was established before he went to Sierra Leone to begin investigations. In exercising his prosecutorial discretion, the security it, its prosecutorial discretion. The security council had directed the prosecutor to use those leaders who, in committing such crimes, have threatened the establishment of and implementation of the peace process in Sierra Leone as a guiding philosophy for case selection. The prosecutor, in labelling the Sierra Leonean government the good guys and the AUF, dogs-of-war hounds from hell and an army of evil, viewed the conflict as a, very moral, as a very morally one-sided affair. One investigator noted that upon the arrival of the prosecutor in Sierra Leone, it was already clear which persons were going to be investigated. Crane viewed the conflict as beginning because of individual criminal gain. He viewed his case against the AUF as the Blood Diamond story, the movie for real in which the motives of the AUF insurgency all boiled down to a commodity, generally diamonds, and the personal criminal gain of the AUF leadership. He also viewed conflict as a good news story, because the good guys won. Crane's Department of Defence analysis was reinforced by British intelligence officers from mi 6 who met with Crane in Europe and West Africa. British and American intelligence officers were sharing intelligence on AUF procurement of financial, military and logistical support, which was passed to the prosecution. President Kabar had directed the British-provided Inspector General of Police, Keith Biddle, to cooperate with the special court, which he did by providing Sierra Leonean police investigators who were prominent in the investigation of the CDF. Between a month and 45 days after the prosecutors' arrival in Sierra Leone, the crimes and who was to be prosecuted for them was clear to the prosecution allowing for indictments to be drafted. Every major appointment, appointing authority, and as a consequence key prosecution of appointees, c- excluding Human Rights Watch seconded advisors, and, other invest- and some other investigators, had a historical or institutional conflict of interest stemming from professional experience aligned to a party uh, to the conflict, or its conclusion. These professional allegiances were, were exaggerated by reliance on information from institutions with similar allegiances and functional impediments of state cooperation and pursuing elements of the Qaddafi regime. The prosecutor in- indicted the RUF leadership and Charles Taylor but neglected to pursue foreign supporters such as Ibrahim Bar, the arms dealer, Blaise Khombori, the Bhutanavi president and Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi. Former Registrar, Robin Vincent, cites political pressure on the Chief Prosecutor David Crane not to indict Gaddafi despite his culpability due to the appearance of a a Gaddafi indictment by a U.S. funded tribunal. David Crane admits he found Gaddafi to be the greatest responsibility but but viewed his indictment as too politically sensitive to pursue. The court's dependence on voluntary contributions from the U.S. and Britain was also critically instructive. Explaining his non indictment as a political deci- as a political decision, Prince said if I hadn't died at Gaddafi and Konkori, then we may have been shut down. In November 2002, a decision was therefore taken to pursue only one of the three leaders allegedly involved in the RUF joint criminal enterprise. Konkori and the weapons trader Ibrahim Barr, who organised the facilitation of arms through P- P- King of Faso to the RUF, were originally thought to be within the political parameters of indictment. Their cooperation with the U.S. government on terrorism as well as the anticipated political and diplomatic fallout of indicting more than one head of state outweighed the uh, the perceived good of holding them accountable. The original list of potential accused was larger than the final number prosecuted and it did include Concori. But on the other side uh, with the CDF, Hanger Norman, the field the head field commander was as high as the chain of command went, despite his position as Deputy Minister of Defence and President Kabar's uh, retaining the position as uh, Defence Minister, to whom Norman reported directly. Some court observers have cited the prosecution of the CDF accused as demonstrative of the, of the Sierra Leonean government's willingness to allow impartial investigation. However, the relationship between Henry Norman and President Kabar had been one of deep mistrust. Since 1997 98. Many observers believed Norman sought to usurp Kabar as leader of the Sierra Leone People's Party, and that Kabar and those close to him, particularly Vice President Solomon Barrower, viewed Norman as a political threat. From the time of the prosecution's arrival in October 2002, there was no suggestion of investigating anyone in the CDF chain of command higher than Henry Norman. Some elements of the prosecution provided leads for investigation of the political and military supporters of the CDF. Those sources did not believe that the information was actively pursued. The first apparent impediment to pursuit of this line of inquiry appeared to be the dependency upon local cooperation with security forces, and the state at large. The consciousness that the investigation and prosecution depended on Sierra Leonean state cooperation. Prosecution personnel were cognizant of the experience of peers at the ICTR attempts to vigorously pursue incriminating information relating to pres- President Kabat, other senior elements of the Sierra Leone Sierra Leonean People's, Party, the Sierra Leonean People's Party or elements of the British Government may have caused a cessation of cooperation as experienced at the ICTR. However, David Crane and subsequent prosecutor Stephen Rapp insist that there was no evidence available to the prosecution impl- impl- implicating either kabat or Barrowa to what extent British-American or Sierra Leonean intelligence would or did make such information available is unclear. The government's posturing towards any attempts to deviate from a politically sensitive line was evident when the Attorney General told the court, the court would or should not act in vain to subpoena the president because of non-enforcement, because the non-enforcement of the subpoena by the Sierra Leonean government would would diminish the court's authority. The court ate humble pie and refused to subpoena President Kabar to testify in Hinge Norman's, um, Hinge Norman's trial. In his concurring but separate opinion, Justice Ito stated that the President's position as one of the princes who govern us requires an environment and atmosphere and an institutional framework for them to perform their duties in all tranquility and without any unnecessary interferences, which could result from the issuance of a subpoena. The court also had some functional characteristics which severely compromised the right to a fair trial and for the accused. Because donors had, vest- had a vested interest in successful prosecutions, the prosecutor's office was provided totally disproportionate funding. The prosecutor was able to appeal directly to donors for funding as an independent organ of the court, however the defence was, in- was reliant upon the registrar to plead their case. The most prominent compromise of the defendant's rights were the prosecution's jurisdiction over witness protection. The location of the witness and victim section of the special court and the secure prosecution area made it inaccessible to the defence. Further, the prosecution had its its own witness protection program supplementary to the court program. Egregious practices such as leisure trips for insider witnesses each weekend to one of... uh, Um, regularly on weekends to one of Sierra Leone's premier beach resorts left the credibility of some key witnesses in some of the key cases enormously undermined. Prosecution witness engagement, finance and jurisdiction created a conflict of interest and potential inducement. The trial chamber refused to examine these practices, citing the need for an, an expedient process. The impact of inauthentic and evasive witness narratives is best described by Tim Castle in his book, Culture and Cross Examination, where he examines the difficulties in extrapolating truth from witness testimony and the tendency for some members of the bench to extract that truth selectively. Both the function and the design of the court have very serious consequences for the Sierra Leonean transitional justice experience. The Security Council, referring to a potential special court for for Sierra Leone, described how a credible credible system of justice and accountability would end impunity and contribute to the process of national reconciliation and to the restoration of the the maintenance of of peace. A credible system of justice might have contributed to addressing impunity in Sierra Leone and the region. However, my findings are that this institution was more about prosecuting victors' justice than conducting an in impartial investigation of all parties through the conflict. This is not an unfamiliar phenomenon for Sierra Leoneans. They have witnessed before the trials and commissions of inquiry established by incoming regimes to discredit their predecessors. If one is to examine the history of regime change in Sierra Leone, be it regime, the regimes of just Colonel Justin Smith, Shaka Stevens, or Valentine Strasser, one observes these processes, and to what extent do such processes contribute to a process of national reconciliation? The conflict was one which divided North and South, Freetown and the provinces and young and old, as well as the uh, males and female, the armed and unarmed, and of course uh, various political <coughs> parties and ethnicities. It is difficult for a process perceived as victor's justice, in my humble opinion, to contribute to reconciliation. And if that is the case, what does does that mean for long-term peace? What one one might be able to argue, well, sorry, what one can argue, is that the, the court contributed to peace and stability, in the short term at least, within Sierra Leone. The court was accompanied by the then largest peacekeeping force in the world, Having leadership of the losing parties to the conflict locked up certainly helps implement security, along with other more, more security-directed interventions. But if the court is to be placed in that context, then it also has to be placed against the backdrop of insecurity, the strategy of which it was a part, caused in Liberia. I think when evaluating these transitional justice mechanisms, we have to be uh, we have to be wary of building coalitions and their support without clear caveats, to to hail the creation of a particular institution ostensibly established to pursue noble ends, may play into the hands of those able to manipulate such processes to serve alternative goals which undermine the justice ostensibly sought. I think this case also tells us that leaving victorious parties to a conflict to construct such institutions inevitably causes a skewed institution with skewed outcomes. Where state participation is narrow, civil society groups need to be more encouraged. I'm not sure the kind of engagement we've viewed with the special court thus far has been altogether helpful. Great. thanks Chris.